Hey everyone, we've got a new pitch website, pitchpodcast.fm. Comment on your favorite episodes, get all the latest news and discuss the podcast with us, pitchpodcast.fm. If you become a subscriber, you'll be able to access real pitches and ad-free episodes. Watch member-only live streams starring us, your hosts, and ask questions we'll answer in future pitch episodes. Join us at pitchpodcast.fm and help us bring you more great content. You can find and subscribe to the premium episodes of this podcast at pitch.supportingcast.fm. This week's premium episode features Megan Reese with her pilot script, Hot Town, Dustin Meadows with his feature script, Fat Slashers, and Andrew Sanford with his feature script, Sweet Surrender. Make sure to check that out. Welcome to another episode of Pitch, connecting storytellers with the world. I'm Leah St. Marie. And I'm Angel. Today, Leah and I have a special guest. Dustin Morrow is an Emmy-winning filmmaker, best-selling author, and tenured professor in the School of Film at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. He allows the relationship between music and emotion to inform his films. He's collaborated with Kathleen Turner and myself, Leah St. Marie. On behalf of myself and Leah, I'd like to welcome Dustin Morrow to the Pitch Podcast. How you doing, man? Very good. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. Um, now, you and Leah have worked together in some capacity. Do you want to give us a little history on that? Yeah. Um, we did a uh, narrative uh, fiction podcast series called Short of Breath, which began as a projected feature film. And I found Leah through uh, some online portal. I can't remember which one. And the funding that was earmarked for that was grant, was dependent on a grant through my university. And that grant went away (laughs) for a variety of annoying reasons. And so the project got downscaled. And I was I had been interested for a while in trying something in the podcast world in like basically what was essentially old school radio drama. thought it would be an interesting challenge for me as a director who likes working with actors to work with actors in that way. And so I was very apologetic to Leah because I had pitched her initially that this was going to be a film. And I know that she is a filmmaker and a film writer. And, um, uh, luckily for me, she was uh, okay with um, shifting to a different medium. Uh, and it actually ended up being a very, I thought it was a very successful and very cool project. And it got into um, a lot of festivals that I would not have had exposure to otherwise. It played in pretty much every major web media and new media festival in the United States. Um and it got some press coverage and it had a really robust listenership um, while it was active. And um, I mean, it's still, you can still find it if you want to find it. It's called Short of Breath. Um, Where can we find it? It's still on probably like six or seven of the, wherever you find podcasts, you okay. know, Google Podcasts and Spotify and all those. It's also on like Vimeo and YouTube, I think. But yeah, it, it it did well, though. He pitched it to me uh, as a feature film, and we wrote it that way. And then the thing with the funding happened, and then it was going to be a kind of Lars von Trier stage production. And then it went into a different iteration, which it became the podcast. And the reason that I agreed to do the podcast is because I asked Justin if I could narrate. That's true. She did. She did a great job narrating it. So yeah. anybody, anybody who wants to hear my voice narrate a story, you can go listen to Short of Breath. It was really fun. It was an interesting experience. Yeah. Leah recorded from Los Angeles and all of the principal cast was based here in Portland. And we recorded in a sound studio at the university where I work. And Leah, I think, recorded in her kitchen. (laughs) In my my closet. (laughs) Oh, in your closet. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. It works. Whatever works. Yeah. It it works. I think it turned out really well. I think it's a good story. I'm still proud of um, the work that we all did. It did very well. So 
I didn't know this about you, Dustin. And this is the first time that we're seeing each other. Like we worked together back in, I think, 2016, but we actually never met face to face. And this is the closest that we've we've gotten because I haven't come to Oregon yet. Well, we but zoomed a bunch when we, we were developing yeah. the project. Yeah. Um, but you don't I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> we did. We, oh, okay. I mean, it was, I think it was, I think we used Skype, but yeah, I mean, we, we did speak face to face. So long ago. Times when we were developing it, yeah. Um, but I didn't know this about you. I didn't know that you did a book on acting with Kathleen Turner. Mm-hmm. How did that yeah. come to be? Um, she was my favorite actress growing up. I'm a child of the 80s. Always been a huge admirer her, of her and her um, career, I thought was very interesting and very different from most of her contemporaries. And I uh, pitched the idea to her to... The other thing I knew about her from being a fan and reading interviews with her um, and seeing her interviewed is that she was very anti-theory when it came to acting. She was very practical in her approach. Her She teaches a class at NYU and other schools called Practical Acting, colon, Shut Up and Do It. And I just thought she would be an interesting person to try to um, wring some theory out of because I didn't believe as a scholar, an academic and a professor that there could be no theory behind it, that, that there had to be something there. And so I somehow convinced her that it was a good idea to do a deep dive into all of her non-existent theories on acting. And I was right. And she had a ton of theories and ideas about acting. And we just, we went through all of her performances and talked about specific choices. And it was just a really revelatory experience for me too, as a director, because I thought by that point I had been directing movies for like 20 years and thought that I kind of knew what there was to know about working with actors and what actors do and realized through that project that there was still a lot for me to learn. Um, and it really changed the way I, I collaborate with actors. And it made me really excited to like do more of that. And so all of the projects that I did right after that book in the years after that book, including the Short of Breath podcast were designed for me at least for what I was going to get out of them um, as experiments in collaborating with actors. Wow. Um because our podcast is about pitching and you said you you pitched the book to her can you yeah, tell us somehow about that? he said he somehow convinced her i'm i'm curious about this somehow there's like got to be some insight into that yeah 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 well i met her i was teaching at temple university in philadelphia and she was collaborating with the philadelphia theater company which is a major theater company there have a big they have a big theater right on the avenue of the arts downtown she was developing a new play called Red Hot Patriot, which is about the Texas journalist Molly Ivins. And I knew she was there doing that show. I went to see the show. Uh, it was my first time ever seeing her live, which was a really cool experience seeing her perform live. And I was like, man, I've been a fan of her since I was, since like, well, since Romancing the Stone, which is one of my favorite movies. Such a good movie. Um, which came out in 1984 when I was still in single digits. I was a little kid, but I've loved it ever since. And I, so I, I was like, well, how can I meet her? I can't just be like, hey, I'm a nobody. Want to go get a, some coffee or something? And so I used my school and my students as a way to meet her. And I, I called the theater company and I said, I, I think it would be really um, a great experience for my students to speak to an actual working actor. And because I knew she had she did teaching and, and stuff like that so that she was into talking to young people. And they're like, yeah, that's great. So, we, you know, we all went down there and we did kind of a Q&A workshop with her and um, she gave me a hard time there, but we hit it off. What did she give you a hard time about? Oh, you know, I was just a little like, I was just a little in awe. Like I met a ton of celebrities when I used to live and work in LA and I don't tend to get starstruck or phased by celebrities but she was uh she meant such a great deal to me um growing up um that i was just a little like i don't, I don't know i couldn't quite i didn't know how to you know i mean i was fine i wasn't a weirdo or anything but you know i was a little fawning and she doesn't do that you know like she's like 
I was introducing her biography. You know, there was a big group there. It wasn't just my students. It was a, students from a bunch of schools. And so I was like going through her biography and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop talking about my biography. Let's just do this. <laughs> it was things like that. You know, she's, she is who you see in interviews. She suffers no fools. Um, she's an old school Hollywood badass. You know, she's a, she's a diva in like the good sense of that, like knows what she wants and what have you. So anyway, uh, we hit it off there and then I wrote a, a pitch package for what the book would be and um, worked with her agent, her manager, and uh, then got a sit down with her um, in New York and was able to convince her that I wasn't crazy and that this book was a good idea and that going through this process would be um, interesting to her. And, uh, and yeah, and then it was just a series of interviews at, at her, um, her condo in New York over a period of months, um, which I then took and shaped into a book. What's the, what's the name of the book again? It's called Kathleen Turner on Acting, which was not my idea or hers. It was the publisher's um, title, but you know, it is what the book is. It's a little limiting, that title, because the book actually is about, it's about life too, and the life of an artist, um, and how to be an artist. What was the alternate title? I don't even remember. <laughs> um, I think I had, she had some, she has some things that she repeated many times while we were talking. She was very, there was some title that involved the word risk because she's very into risk taking. Like that's her whole career is built on that. Um, doing what she's told by her managers and producers and agents not to do. Like that's what she's basically done her whole life. And it has obviously served her, it served her well and not well in the sense that like she really ought to be Meryl Streep right now, but she's not because she didn't make the kind of choices that Meryl Streep made. And, but she's cool with that. Getting away from your question, which is something, it was something about taking risks or something was my favorite title, but you know, they wanted to sell books. So it's Kathleen Turner on acting. Do you remember what was in the pitch package that you submitted to her reps that they were like, oh yeah, okay, we'll, we'll entertain this guy some more. Yeah. Even though I, it wasn't, um, a pitch package for approaching a publisher. That's kind of how I approached it, which when you're writing a pitch for a book, there are, there's a form, essentially, you have to include all these different things you have to include. I can't even remember what they are, because I haven't pitched a book in a while. But I know, like, one of them is, um, you have to demonstrate that there's no similar text on the market. You have to demonstrate that there's an audience for the text you're proposing, but you also have to show like what are similar. It's it's a little like hmm. it's a little paradoxical because you have to you have to like demonstrate that you're going to plug some hole that exists in the market, but you also have to show that there are books out there kind of like this one that have sold. Um, so I remember I remember using like Jenna Fisher has a book on acting. I remember using a Michael Caine book. Like there are, but I also remember saying to them, there aren't a lot of books, there are a million books about acting. I've used a lot of them in teaching my classes and they're by scholars and they're by actors who never found any kind of real success. There's not a lot of books by really successful actors talking about acting. I mean, when Jenna Fisher is like the most famous person you can find who wrote a book about acting, that's, I mean, nothing against Jenna Fisher, but like, that's not, she's not, <laughs> she's not Kathleen Turner famous. So yeah. um, I was like, you know, this could be, if I was, if I was like a developing actor or somebody who wanted to learn how to work with actors and I brought up the Amazon page and, and was looking for a book on acting and I saw a bunch of names I've never seen before, but then one of the books that was written by Kathleen Turner, like that's the one I would pick. Um, so that was part of, that was part of the pitch. And that's the kind of pitch you would make to a publisher and not necessarily the, the, the talent involved in the book. But um, because I wasn't writing the book by myself, I had to, I thought that was how I had to approach it. What well, worked? Yeah, clearly it, it worked. It worked well enough to get her to sit down with me, which was the ultimate goal. Um, because she, she doesn't need any of this. She doesn't need to do anything. I, I mean, she's, 
she is who she is and she's a legend and and um <laughs> i had to con- i also had to show her like i was going to be somebody like just worth spending some time with and we did just hit it off you know she still texts me and like you know we still communicate and uh you know we're not close friends but we're friends and uh i just love her to death i think she's great and uh, she's she seems to f- she seems to find me naively amusing so <laughs> We have a we have a good relationship. That's great. Um, speaking of, you got you're in with Kathleen Turner through your students in a way. Angel has a couple of good questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked specifically about pitching a book to a publisher, which has a very specific form. Do you cover in any of the courses that you're teaching the various forms of pitching in depth? Or is that not something that you particularly teach, but you know other people, maybe in your college, do cover? Yeah, I mean, we have whole courses on producing that address that. We have a course called Portfolio and Professional Development, which is about helping students transition from being students into the marketplace. And part of that, as you guys know, when you work in media, is your capacity, regardless of what you want to do, in the arts to sell yourself. We cover things like creating a good website, building a reel, like writing a resume, writing a cover letter, right down to like designing a, a business card. Like it covers all, all those aspects. And so it's pitching in the sense that you're pitching yourself. Um, when I teach screenwriting, I of course talk about writing pitches writing coverage, writing log lines and synopses, writing treatments. And those are all kind of variations on convincing people that the project is worth considering or worth at least giving the time to read in the case of a screenplay. Sure. Um, So yeah, we, we cover that. And I also think that oral communication is an important part of that. It's a industry built on people talking to other people. And so, uh, I force my students to get up in front of the class. And a lot of them just really hate this. They probably hate this more than anything else I do in my classes. And But get up in front of the class and pitch their ideas. Um, and man, they're, they're terrible at it. And so it's <laughs> worth doing. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, they get up and they look at the ceiling or they look at their feet and they mumble and they ramble and they don't seem to have any structure to their presentation. So we, we refine those. We try to build kind of the, what we all know is the elevator pitch, which is, you know, the, the quick, succinct way to sell your ideas with confidence and affability. I just try to get them to do that. And a lot of them are like, well, I don't want to be a producer and I don't want to be a screenwriter. So why do I have to learn this stuff? And I'm, I'm, I'm always like, well, even if you want to like edit or be a cinematographer or an art director or like hell, even like a gaffer or something, you still have to be able to collaborate and to collaborate with people, you have to be able to present confident ideas. And uh, you're not gonna be able to do that unless you can talk to people with some degree of elegance and coherence. And I would, I would group all that stuff under what I would call pitching, even though you're not necessarily pitching a creative concept. So you got your MFA in 2003 from University of Iowa, is that correct? So over the past 20 years, how has your experience of pitching people and talking to people about your ideas evolved, if it has at all? That's a great question. It hasn't. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I mean, if it don't, I mean, if it isn't broke, the, don't fix it, the, right? Yeah. Well, it's not that it's, I would say the basics of it are, have always been the same which is to, your goal is to convince people that your idea is worth supporting. And to do that, you have to have a few basic things. You have to have some structure. You have to present, you have to have clarity. You have to have confidence. You have to seem like somebody that they're gonna wanna work with because you can have the greatest idea in the world, but if you seem like a jerk, then who's gonna wanna collaborate with you? So it's all that stuff is, is basically there. I mean, obviously like, Film finance has changed and the kinds of projects in the industry that are getting greenlit are different. 
And um, so I would imagine that that has to have changed how pitches work. I can't, I mean, it's been a long time. It's funny because I am working on a couple Hollywood projects right now, but I've never had the, the experience like you see in Robert Altman's The Player where the person's like sitting in the office and they're like, it's pretty woman meets out of Africa or whatever the jokes were in that, in that, the opening long shot of that movie. That's never been my experience of pitching. My experience has always been kind of less formal than that and more conversational. I think it helps to be a good writer. When my students ask me, like, you know, they have electives that they have to take outside the major in, in, able, in order to graduate. They're always like, well, what should I go take? Because I only want to study film. I don't really want to go, I don't want to go do anything else. And I always send them over to the English department or to creative writing. And I just see, man, no matter what you want to do, whether, again, whether it's editing or even being a gaffer, like learn to write. Like that could be, that's the most valuable thing you could learn outside of studying film while you're here is learning how to write. In fact, that's like the, that's the thing that I would say separates like the, the people who find real success in our industries from the people who find like a lot, like a mega amount of success. Like the ones that rise to the very top are ones that know how to write. Is, I mean, speaking of that, is there a pithy way to answer this question? What advice do you give to your students on having a successful film career? That's changed too. I mean, now it is, it is maybe have some flexibility and think, think about the fact that Film production is not just film anymore. In fact, it's mostly not film. It's what we call like annoyingly, obnoxiously, I think, content. And that there are everywhere you see a screen, which is to say in everybody's pocket even, somebody has to make media to appear on that screen. I used to do an exercise when I taught in Philly. I challenged students to get out of the building that we were in without passing a screen. And there were a bunch of, it was a big school building. So there were hallways and staircases and it was very labyrinthine in its construction, but they figured out there was no way to do it. You, they couldn't leave the building without going past a, a, a monitor. Wow. Um, and so, you know, somebody has got to make stuff to put on those monitors. Um, so be flexible. A lot of my students come in and they want to be one of two things. They want to be Gus Van Sant or they want to be Steven Spielberg. Or I guess now it would be like Tarantino or I don't know, Nicholas <laughs> Winding Refn or somebody like that. But like, but part of, so part of my job is to expand their ideas of like what media production is. Um, and the other thing I tell them is that one of the greatest things about our field is that it allows you to combine your interest in media production with other interests that you have. And so like, one of the questions I ask them in the early classes is what are you passionate about that has nothing to do with film? And they'll say things like, you know, sports. Sports is the most common one. And so I say, okay, how about sports broadcasting or doing sports media for the web? And a lot of them have gone into that. It's it just sort of, you could see like a light bulb go off over their head. You mean, they're like, you mean I can do sports? for a living for the rest of my life, even though I'm enrolled in film school? It's like, yeah, you can. Um, so all of our graduates, like a lot, a lot of our graduates have gone on to like work for Seattle Storm or oh, the Timbers or whoever the sports teams are around here up in the Northwest. And we had a ton of those students when I was in Philly. Like they, like it seemed like half of our students went to ESPN or Fox Sports. But I've had students, I had a student that was really into world travel to the degree that she was like missing class a lot. And I was not surprised to see that she became a cruise ship broadcaster. So she produces media about the cruise. There's a, like apparently all these big cruise ships have um, TV control rooms that produce content just for the closed caption, for the closed circuit, that is a TV network that's just on the ship. 
So they'll, she'll like go out and she'll make a little film about the dance and you, you'll go to the dance on the cruise and then you turn on the TV in your cabin the next morning and there's a little documentary about the dance you went to the night before. She makes the, that kind of stuff. Wow. Um, and, she, and she travels the world. I had a student who was very religious uh, and ended up um, working in the broadcast studio at one of those big mega churches in Texas that like broadcast their sermons wherever. <laughs> I don't know a lot about it, but I know she was able, you know, and so it's like, you know, think about what else you wanted, what else you love. You want to make films. It's like, what do you want to make films about? And who do you want to make films with? You know, those are questions to answer while you're a student, I think. I love this because you're talking about screenwriters and students of yours who, who come to you that don't necessarily want to follow maybe they the path that they thought they wanted to do, but a different path. And I think within that dynamic comes the question of, well, this isn't a solitary thing. Like screenwriting can be, but ultimately at the end of it, it's not. It's this teamwork of people. So you're talking about your students and the importance of this other team member, this gaffer, this DP, this producer. So can you talk a little bit about how important a team is to getting a film made? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the other thing that they that they have to learn that often annoys them is that there, there isn't a lot of solo work in media production. There are one-man bands that make little things, and you can do that and probably have a career, but you're going to be doing stuff like shooting weddings or corporate video or something. If you want to make anything on scale, you're going to have to work with other people. And one of the first things I tell them, because they always groan when I say, you know, this next project is a group project, and they look look at me with great irritation <laughs> when I say, it's probably for the best if one of your teammates on one of these projects ends up annoying the hell out of you and or does no work and you have to carry them on your back and you have to watch them get a great a good grade that you're the one that earned just because they're on your team that's going to annoy you <laughs> but welcome to media production <laughs> um, on the other hand you're also going to meet somebody in some of these classes who's going to be like your ride or die partner for life. You're going to collaborate with them after you graduate. You're going to know them forever. They're going to get a job on a film and they're going to tell the line producer about you. And then that line producer is going to call and hire you as well. Like, you're, And you're going to do the same. Uh, you'll meet a lot more of those people than you will meet the people who half-ass it and uh, who you end up carrying. Those people never end up having careers after schools. But it's a good experience to have all experiences of of collaboration good and bad when you're a film student and there's nothing um there's no sort of professional repercussions of that so you know it's the time to take risks while you're in school it's a collaborative it's a collaborative industry and it's important that they learn that before they before they leave um we don't want that to be like an awakening have you found your ride or die um, there are, yeah, there are people that, uh, I've worked with many, many times and it's, um, it's, it's great to have people that you don't have to worry about <laughs> when you work with new people. There's always a question of like, how's it going to go? And how do I, you know, when you understand, when you have a shorthand, a language with a, with a frequent collaborator, that's a really useful thing for a project because it frees your brain up to think about other things. So yeah, I mean there are actors that I that I love. I have an actor here in Portland that I would cast in anything, and he's just always good and he's just reliable. Um, and so you know, I'm always like, if I'm writing something that I know I'm going to make here, I'm like, oh, this is his part. This will be his part right here, and I don't have to worry about whether he'll be good. And I don't, I'm not going to have to babysit his performance. What? What ultimately um, led you into studying film and then gaining an MFA in the cinematic arts? Like why, were there, was there one movie, one show, other than, you know, being a huge like Kathleen Turner fan in the 80s and what led you to have a, a desire yeah, to get, get into it? I, I grew up in a very small, very rural community in Western Illinois, farm 
a farm. I grew up on a lake, um, but the lake was surrounded by cornfields. Uh, we couldn't even get cable where I lived. It was too remote. So I had no cable TV. What we did get when I was in uh, like second grade was a VCR. And my dad had a small town drugstore and they stocked blank VHS tapes on their shelves. And I used to clean them out. And I would tape every movie that came on TV that looked even remotely interesting. And the, I would pause and rewind. And it was a process of um, before there was any kind of like special features on DVDs or documentaries about the making of movies or there was just nothing like that out there. It was an organic process that I feel like I came on to myself just through wearing out these VHS tapes of figuring out that there had to be people behind these things and there had to be some kind of strategy for how they were made and just being really fascinated by that. And I did wear those tapes out to the point where literally like my tape of Star Wars at one eventually actually did turn into dust, like <laughs> the magnetic tape. Um, I, I played it so many times. Wow. It broke so many times that I had to, I, I became an expert at opening up a VHS tape and scotch taping the magnet, the, the tape back together because they were always breaking because I was playing them so often. Um, but eventually it did actually just crumble into my fingers. It was a very sad day. So yeah, that was sort of how I how I came to it. It was it was sort of you know, I w- when I started in film school, it was like the early Sundance had just kind of blown up. Like Kevin Smith's Clerks was around, and Tarantino was around, and Soderbergh was really just emerging. Um, so there was a it was still considered kind of an inaccessible art form in the sense that you couldn't make movies unless you had money. You could, you, you, could, you know, you could do stuff with videotape, but nobody was thinking that you could make films on videotape. But it was the, it was the birth of like an independent, that independent 90s cinema. Um, and we were all as students kind of excited about that. I wish that we had had all the digital tools that my students have now. I get students now, I mean, I've been teaching for 20 years, and when I started, none of them had ever touched, like, editing software, and now I can't find a student that hasn't been editing since they were 9 or 10 years old. Wow, that's like, impressive. some of them on their phones, you know, <laughs> like, it's just everybody, they're all, they're all, like, cutting YouTube videos or, you know, whatever they are now, TikToks or whatever the hell they're making. It doesn't mean they know how to edit in the sense that they don't know how to tell a story or, you know, or any of the theory of, of like how to actually make something that somebody wants to watch. But they understand the technology, which is cool because it allows, you know, it's like a, it means I get to start further down my syllabus than I would normally have, than I used to. I used to te- have to teach them like, here's how you use a camera. I don't really have to do that anymore. They know how to use them already. So on day one, we can like start making films. It's cool. What's your number one editing tip? Always allow at least three or four times the time that you think it's going to take. Because they're like, oh, I'll, I'll edit this thing on Thursday night. And I'm like, well, if you think it's going to take three hours, it will take nine minimum. Mm-hmm. If you think it will take nine, it will take at least 27 hours. Like, you know, just do... That's the way that works. That's that, accurate. And get feedback. Yeah. And get feedback. That's the other thing. Step away from it. Give yourself feedback by stepping away from it and then coming back at least like two days after you finished it. Because you'll sit down and watch it and you'll be like, oh my God, you'll see stuff you didn't see. Watch it with somebody. That's a really good tip. Oh, when yeah. someone is sitting mm-hmm. next to you watching something you've cut, um, you'll see it completely different. They don't even need to say anything. I bring my partner in and have her watch stuff and like she doesn't even need to give me feedback. Just the act of having her like there with me makes me see the project totally differently. There's a similar phenomenon with writing is, you know, you think your script is polished and ready. And then as soon as you send that PDF to one friend, you're like, oh, my God, wait a second. (laughs) I just had nine ideas and eight things I should have fixed before I sent it. You know, what what is that phenomenon where another person's eyes on it? instantly give you a mm-hmm. different perspective 
regardless of if they give feedback or not. That's like such a bizarre thing. Isn't I think it weird? It's, it's so weird. It's also great for pitching. Like you were talking about, Dustin, your students being forced, you forcing your students to stand in front of each other and pitch their story or pitch their idea. But having an audience react to your concepts, you can tell immediately if it's working or if it's not working. Yeah. And something that sounded great to you when you were ideating and coming, you know, when you were coming up with it, when you when you're expressing it out loud, all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is dumb. Like, even if they're not giving you (laughs) feedback, you could be like, oh, this doesn't work at all. It worked in my head. But now that I have to communicate it to other people, I'm realizing it doesn't work or it works better than I thought it would, you know, like. Yeah, I think audience is a really good tool to have in your tool bag as a as a creative. I'm curious about when you're teaching the students uh, in what areas do you insist that the students place the audience experience first and foremost? You know, if you're editing, there's obviously technical considerations, which you're saying now the youth have. And I know a lot of the standard rules around anything, writing, editing, directing, are for the audience's benefit. But do you actually frame up? Okay, so what we're trying to actually do is not necessarily direct a picture, but direct an audience's emotional journey as well as these actors, as well as the everything else. Is that like part of your curriculum? Yeah, totally. I mean, f- film is an empathy machine, right? It's, I think, the greatest medium for generating empathy. And it's also, all you have to do is look at like, I mean, what was the, some of the earliest film was used for propagandistic purposes and political purposes, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it, it was something that the people who started making it immediately realized could convince people of ideas or make them generate emotions to, to provoke specific actions from them. You know, there's a great story, too, of like the early showings of the great train robbery, which is considered, you know, one of the earliest um, multi-shot narrative, you know, continuity editing based films. There's a shot at the end of that movie where the cowboy points his gun directly at the camera and pulls the trigger. And reportedly people were diving under their seats in the theater. People lose themselves in film. Speaking of romancing the stone, I remember seeing that as a little kid. I could tell you where I was sitting in the theater Hmm. when I saw it. And I remember the credits rolling at the end of that movie and having a almost bizarre out-of-body experience where I felt like I had been jerked back into the theater. And it felt, I just, I still remember the feeling to this day. It's one of the most cogent um, memories I have of movie going in my life forgetting that I was watching a movie, being so caught up in it. You know, that's escapist entertainment, right? We're escaping from our our lives. And so with something that powerful, you know, to quote Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Like we have responsibility to our audiences for those, the experiences that we're giving them because they don't know how this stuff works. If they did, Trump would have no fans anywhere in America. But people don't understand how media works. They don't understand how media manipulates their ideas and their emotions. And so we have to be very careful. So yeah, we, we talk about the audience very early in all of these projects. And from a more sort of, like that's the fun romantic way of talking about it. The, the, the more boring kind of practical way is that you, if you want to do this stuff after you graduate professionally, you can't go make media professionally without knowing who you're making it for. You're not making a film to keep it in a paper bag and carry around and show people. Right. I, I knew a guy who did that once, by the way. That's why <laughs> <laughs> he used to he had a he had a he used to carry around a paper bag, had a reel of film in it. He's like, this is my film. I'm like, can I see it? He's like, you are seeing it. Here it is. <laughs> it was, it was very weird. It was a guy I went to it was a guy I went to grad school with. He was he was crazy. Speaking of audience, what's your next story that you're giving to an audience? What are you working on? I'm working on a couple projects that are, um, one of which is pretty far along that I can't really talk about. Um, 
I understand. Sorry. I don't want to be one of those. I mean, I hate That's those people. Good. When you it's see interviews where people are like, tell us more about your next project. And they're like, I can't really discuss it. But now that I'm there, like I know that you, you actually can't really discuss it. But maybe you'll have me back after it becomes announced. And then I can, tell you, I can tell you the really interesting road that led to its creation. Um, good. Because you'll be like, how did it get, when it does get announced, like you'll, you'll be confused as to how some guy in Portland made it happen. Hopefully it'll happen. I don't want to jinx it. That's the other reason I but probably shouldn't talk that's about That's a it. caveat all filmmakers say. I don't know yeah. if it's going to happen or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't. Like, that's the thing. Like, this project, this project was originally planned to shoot last fall, had a big name actor, um, and things happen, you know? It, it's no longer being shot in the country that it was originally going to be shot in. It's moved nations. <laughs> I mean, it's, these things are... They're very, these things are very fluid. When you start to involve like millions of dollars, it's a whole different world. So, I mean, that's one sandbox that I kind of keep one toe in because you never know and it's fun and why not? But my sandbox is like the micro budget, smaller sandbox. And that's where I get to have total creative control. And one of the great things about my job, and I, I mean, I love teaching. I would never give up teaching, but one of the reasons that I that I do what I do is because it affords me the luxury of getting to make whatever I want to make without having to worry about gaining financially from these projects because I don't I mean mm-hmm. none of the films that I that I make kind of on my own are going to put a bunch of money in my pocket but I I make them because I feel like I have something to say and because they're super fun to make I like collaborating with like-minded artists and doing stuff that I'm passionate about so i like everybody else you know hold up during the pandemic and just went on a writing spree and so i wrote um seven features during the pandemic and uh like three of them are in the hollywood machine going through what what they're going through and uh four of them are things that i can make and i'm just trying to decide which one i want to make first and how that's going to work that's a good position to be in i think because i actually think unlike most people i actually think we're still in a pandemic uh so trying to figure figure those things out they all have small casts so it'll i'm hoping that they will uh and limited locations so i'm hoping that they're they're makeable films if you were given an unlimited budget is there a story that you've always wanted to write that you have kept yourself from writing because you're like this would never get made so i'm not going to spend time on it let me do things that can possibly get made yeah i mean there's a there's a book that i would totally turn into a movie and it would be an absolute beast and probably a wildly unpleasant movie to make um and it would take a zillion dollars to make it it's a book from the 70s by a guy named justin scott called the ship killer it's just um the book isn't even it's good. The the I don't love it. the 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 protagonist is not um, particularly written in a way that he's likable. <laughs> not that not that protagonists have to be likable, but he's not even like you 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 don't root for him, which I think at the very least you should want to root for him. But the premise of the book is just f- phenomenal, and the the one line description is basically this that. This guy and his wife are on a sailboat in the ocean and the sailboat gets run over by one of those massive oil tankers. Even though the sailboat has right of way, the tanker plows through it, kills the guy's wife. The guy goes crazy. He goes through the court system to try to get some kind of justice for his, his deceased wife. Is unable to because of big money that surrounds oil and politics and those sorts of things and decides that he's going to sink the tanker himself to get revenge. Goes crazy. And so it's this revenge story set on the high seas between this little guy in a sailboat who's trying to take down this massive oil tanker. It becomes this kind of cat and mouse game. And it would have to be shot out on the ocean. And you would need an oil tanker. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it would be like, it would be like a 
hefty nine-figure budget. I who think, would who would you it. cast? First person that popped into my mind was Gerard Butler. Maybe he's done this where he's lost a wife before and he's gone crazy, but that's the first person who popped into my yeah, head. Yeah, he's always getting he's always getting revenge on yeah. somebody, right? <laughs> that's his like yeah. archetype. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be he'd be fine. Russell Crowe would be great. I mean, there's yeah, any guy in his like mid fifties to mid sixties who's kind of rugged and kind of like doesn't listen to people. Like that's that's who you need. Yes. You brought up an interesting point um, about a protagonist being likable, and I just had a. Um, a meeting with the producer I wrote something for a couple weeks back and he's like I don't feel like this character is likable and I said yeah he's a little bit of an asshole he's a little bit of a jerk but he's got a huge lesson to learn and that's where he starts so when you say to your students you know protagonists don't necessarily have to be likable what do you then follow that up with but they better be what to make an audience follow them along this journey yeah well if it's the main character then they better have an arc like you just said they're better they better be they better seem different at the end of the movie than they were at the beginning or if they're not if they're the same then that needs to be the point of the movie because otherwise your audience is going to be mad like social network yeah like social network that's the point is he Mm -hmm. doesn't learn and he doesn't learn a lesson right yeah that's the last shot of that movie where he keeps hitting, you know, reload to see if she's accepted his friend request. Like this guy is never going to learn his lesson. But that's mm-hmm. the point of the social network. That's why that movie exists to tell that story. Mm-hmm. So for everybody else, which is to say, ninety-nine percent of most movies, like the character needs to learn something. The other thing is they don't have to be likable, but you have to be able to understand them. Yeah. If we're if you're watching a movie and you're like, I don't. Like, I don't get where this person is even coming from. Like, what's motivating them? Then that's a failure, I think. Yeah. If you, you don't have to agree with the character, but you do have to understand what, what do they want? Like, what are they going, what are they going after? Yeah. We've all seen movies like that, too, with, with characters just, that just seem impenetrable. Um, and those are very frustrating things to watch. I know, by those criteria, I think the ship killer sounds like a hit, man. <laughs> Me too. Well, it has been it's been licensed a few times to as recently as like 20 I feel like 2015 or something I heard that some like Dutch company or something was going to make it and I can understand why it never gets made cuz it it's just so massive. Um but I think I think it's a great story. I like I'm a sucker for like I don't know. I like movies set on the seas too. I just like uh have you seen Deadcom? Like movies that are with like thrillers that are just isolated and you can't get more isolated than being stuck on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Yes. Yeah. You haven't seen Deadcom? That's no, that's my assignment no. to you and all your listeners to Dead go Com, look for okay. Philip Noyce's Australian 1988 thriller Deadcom with uh, Billy Zane, Nicole Kidman and Sam Neill. It's a three person cast one of the most exciting and scary movies you will see in your life it's like 80 minutes of non-stop suspense done um, okay there's yeah. also a, a, a blake lively movie from a couple years back where she was on a sailboat it was kind of her castaway right where her husband died on the on the sailboat and she had to or he yeah, was yeah, it's, uh, shailene woodley oh it shailene woodley dr- yeah yeah it was called adrift that was good yeah, yeah, it was. It was a, I, I read that as a script, and I was like, "This is an amazing." I don't know if it was on the blacklist at some point, but it was amazing. But similarly yeah. set on the high seas, very isolating, you know. Yeah, true story. Well, I hope you get your zillion dollars, man, because <laughs> Ship Killer sounds great. I like. It does. I, I think I it's see more. Yeah, it's more that I want to see it than that I want to make it. Ah, I gotcha. <laughs> so I want to be like. I want to. I want like. Um, speaking of the social network, I want Mark Zuckerberg money. So that I can hire the people I want to go make it so that I can watch it. That, that's my dream. That's I'm good. That. I dig that dream. Well, I think <laughs> we're out of time. I don't have any more questions. Yeah. Did you have any questions for us or anything that you'd like to share? You've imparted so much insight and wisdom. Is there anything mm-hmm. that you've always wanted to say to a broad audience or maybe something that you say to all your students that you think a broader audience needs to hear or can benefit from? 
I mean, I think I, I think I've said it. Just that um, that I that I love this medium. Um, that empathy machine line is not mine. It's Roger Ebert's. Um, he wrote an essay, which I think everybody who loves film or wants to make film should read. That is about how film functions as as the the greatest vehicle for empathy anywhere in the arts, the uh, the capacity to walk in another person's shoes is like the thing that makes the world a better place, right? And and making movies can be a key part of that, you know? It's a powerful tool and we don't always use it as well as we should. I'll give another movie recommendation before we go. Okay. Which is the 7-Up series. Yes. It's not... The 7-Up series is not my favorite movie, but I think it's the best use of film as a medium that has ever been. Um, And for people that don't know what I'm talking about, it's a documentary series of like, I don't know where they're at now, seven or eight films. No, more than that. Eight or nine. Um, Directed by Michael Apted, an English filmmaker who I worked for once. Talk about a, he's a very wry, dry um, hilarious person, very smart guy. One of those guys that when you follow him around, you want to like have a notebook so that you can write down everything he says so that you don't forget it because he's like one of those like filmmaking Yodas. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mo- it's a documentary series that follows th- this group of uh, about twelve people through their entire lives, and it, they make a new movie every seven years. There's a film called Seven Up, then there's a movie called Fourteen Up, which which checks in with them when they're fourteen years old. 21, 28, 35, and so on. I think they the last one they made was 64. So they've been tracing the, the, the entire lives of these people. So to the degree that film as a medium is like our best medium for reflecting mm-hmm. life, like this is about as good as it gets, like getting to watch and these people's entire lives unfold and seeing all of their joys and tragedies and all of the things that have happened to them that are fair and unfair. And um, uh, it'll, it'll make you rethink deep ideas about what you think, about why, why you're here and what you should be doing, why you're here. They're profound movies, um, and everybody should see them. And I've made them sound like they're a slog and they're no fun, but they're actually like great movies. They're really funny, um, really moving, and they're really accessible. Anybody could watch them and enjoy them and get something from them. So I guess that's what I would leave you with, a a movie recommendation. That's great. That's appropriate, too. It's perfect. Well, thank you again, Dustin. I really appreciate your time and all of your wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, guys. This was fun. I'd like to extend a huge thank you again to our guest, Dustin Morrow. We'd also like to thank you for listening. For both Lee and myself, cheers from Hollywood. If you're on the fence about subscribing, know that a portion of all subscription fees go toward the nonprofit Young Storytellers, raising voices one story at a time. <laughs>